Uh, so it really is a privilege and a pleasure to be here. I always start by uh, reading some scripture. So I'm going to read out of Luke chapter 7. And this is a story about a man being, or a lad being raised from the dead. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. <clears throat> then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on, and the bears stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe, and praised God, a great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. And we know that's the word of the Lord, and we know that he will bless it. Suppose really, uh, Jim has covered in his prayer some of the things that I like to say, I like to say that I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm certainly not the only person in here that has a story. Everybody has a testimony of some description. Everybody goes through trouble. So I am not telling you that I'm the only person that has went through difficulties. There's people I meet who have went through worse things than I ever went through. Suppose really I've got to start at the beginning. Uh, and the beginning really starts with my father. He was an Englishman. And he lived in Essex, and he lived near Colchester and Chelmsford in a wee town called Witham. And when he left school at 14, he got a job uh, as a message boy in the co-op. But he wanted to learn to drive, so he joined the TA, because in them days, people didn't have cars and whatnot the way they have now. And he joined the TA, and he knew that he would be taught how to drive in the TA. And he eventually got a heavy goods vehicle license, and that was what he was after. But unfortunately for him, war broke out. And one day he was a message boy, the next day he was in the expeditionary forces that eventually went into France. And that uh, group of men, them thousands, 300 or 400,000 men that went into France, were eventually pushed back uh, by the, the German uh, Wehrmacht and the Luftwaffe and whatnot. And he ended up on the beach of Dunkirk. He was four days on the beach at Dunkirk, dug in a hole in the ground before he got rescued. But he told me some stories about that. He told me when they were retreating, uh, one of his friends, they were strafed continually and uh, shot at continually. And he says people were dying around him and one of his friends got wounded and him and another friend helped this friend to the beach. They dug a hole and they got into the hole and they lived there for four days. And when they got the order to leave that dugout, uh, they were told they would have to swim out till a cruiser ran out in the bay called the Ivanhoe. And he lifted his wounded friend and he told his other friend, right, we've got the order to go. And uh, his friend sat on and my father hit him a punch thinking he was asleep and he was sitting dead. So that's how close my father was to uh, being killed. And he didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as a saviour. He probably had never heard the word saved. In this province where we live, uh, the word saved, almost everybody has heard born again or saved. So when he got back to England, his, one of his first postings was 
Cecil Barracks here in Lisbon. And during the war, he met my mother, and during the war, they got married. He was retrained, and he, on D-Day, was back at Gold Beach, uh, which is Aramanch. And he told me that he was in the second wave of uh, people who landed on the beach. And by then, the Germans were alerted, and his a boat got hit, and many of his friends in the explosion got killed. Again, he survived, and when he hit the beach, he had to climb over the top of the boat because the boat was so badly damaged, the front wouldn't go down. And then he fought through uh, France, uh, Belgium. He lived in Antwerp for quite a while. He was in Holland, and he was in Germany. And he was the first British regiment into Belsen. It only had been liberated by one day when my father got there. Uh, he saw Belson as you and I see it in the television with all the bodies. And one of his jobs with Belson was to make the Germans clean the place up. And he was there for some time, organizing <coughs> men to transfer prisoners. They're, the prisoners, uh, they were Polish, they were wherever, Russian and all over the world, and getting them to transit camps. And he says some of them were so uh, disorientated, they didn't even know what country they came from. They were so badly treated. And when he was demobbed, he came to Lisbon because my mother wouldn't leave her mother. So he set up a home in Lisbon. And he got a job driving a UTA bus. People here old enough to remember Ulster Transport Authority. And he drove a UTA bus. And in the depot, there was born-again Christians who were conductors and drivers and uh, fitters, and they witnessed to my father, and he learnt and heard that he needed to be saved. And he was invited to meetings probably like this, and he always refused to go. And then for some reason in 1950, he accepted an invitation to the Christians Workers Union in Lisbon, and it was in the middle of the day, and I never got round to asking him before he passed away why he went to that meeting. But he went anyhow, and during that time in that meeting, he met the Lord Jesus and he was saved. So he was. And he lived a fantastic life. And he was such a lovely man. And that was 1950. So I was very privileged, very blessed that I never once ever remember not knowing that I needed to be born again. I was born in 1949. So that makes me 71 years of age. And uh, I had never a time in my life that I didn't know that I needed to be saved. I was brought up under the sound of the gospel, but rejected it. Didn't want anything to do with it. I, don't, I can't tell you why. I just could not see the purpose or the, see why anybody would want to uh, go and get saved. I wanted to live my life, my way, even from a young age. Now, I call my talk quite a lot life-changing days. And one of the big life-changing days in my life was we lived out in the country in a cottage, and the cottage, uh, I had to walk to school, and it was about a mile and a half from a new council estate that was being built. And they filled the houses up so many at a time when they were finished, and they'd just finished a batch of houses and just finished them up. And as I walked past to go to school one morning, a girl came out of the front door of one of the houses, and when she saw me, she fell in love with me. <laughs> And I wasn't even as handsome then because I'd her and it spoiled me, so it did. And uh, I was 13 and she was 14. And I fell in love with her once I seen her. I tell her now that uh, 
should be in trouble with the authorities because I was underage. She took advantage of me, so she did. So Pat and I met. Uh, we went out off and on from then until we eventually got married. And in January past there, we were married 52 years. So we've had a life together. So now when I, I served my time as a joiner, so I'm a joiner by trade, and I always, from I started serving my time, I always wanted to go out on my own. Pat had never heard the word saved until she met me. Now I speak sometimes in places like England where there's interpreters working and evangelical jargon would not go down there because people wouldn't understand it. So I always explain what it means to be saved. It means to be, saved means to be simply that you're saved from hell when you die. You're saved from hell. Born again means when you're saved, you're born again. You're rebirthed and you're taken out of the family of the devil. When you're not saved, it tells us very clearly in the scriptures that your father is the devil. When you're saved, your father becomes God and Jesus Christ becomes your brother. You're rebirthed. You're in a new family, and you will never lose that. And you know, a lot of people don't understand that. And I would have explained this to Pat, even though I wasn't saved, I would have explained this to Pat, and Pat searched this out for herself. She was very academic, very well educated, and she uh, come to the point where she realised she needed to be saved, even though I wasn't. When we got married, very quickly had a family with Mark, who works in the. I have a business, and he works in the business with me. And our second child, we called him David. He died at birth, so we did. We don't know why he actually died at birth, but he was full-time pregnancy. She Pat went in to have the baby, and the baby died. It maybe lived for a few minutes, but he died, and we buried David, and that was hugely sad. Our third child was Jennifer, and our fourth child was Philip. And during this time, a neighbor of ours, who I was very friendly with, I'd went to school with her, and I'd went to Sunday school with him, and we would have had supper together. And she invited Pat to a mission in their church. And Pat went to that mission and she got saved. So she's just slightly over 50 years saved now. So she is. And she churched the children. I had no concern for my soul or for their soul. That sounds terrible, but it's a fact. And you know, uh, we, uh, we had... Uh, a business by this time and the business was doing well I was able to move out of my council house I bought two cottages out in the country and knocked them down and built a nice house and I live in that house to this day unfortunately Pat's health broke down very badly she took diabetes not because of weight problems her pancreas just quit and she then took very severe rheumatoid arthritis and she had to go into hospital for an operation and they warned her never to have any more children. And I said, well, you know, she says, they advised me to get sterilized. I said, well, you know, it's up to you. I said, I wouldn't ask you to do that. But she went back into hospital and she had an operation. She was sterilized. But this time we're living out in Ballandary with a nice house and we had three lovely children. We had uh, Mark, we had Jennifer and we had Philip. Business was good. We were able to live quite well. We weren't hugely wealthy, but we weren't short of a pound. And Pat went in and had this operation, and about 
a year after she had this operation, she comes down the stairs one morning, she calls me Andrew, she won't call me Andy. And actually, in fact, when we got married, I told her to call me Mr. Cardi, but she wouldn't call me Mr. Cardi, she calls me Andrew. And uh, she comes down one morning, she says, Andrew, I'm pregnant again. And I says, how can you be pregnant, you stupid woman, when you're, you're sterilized? But this went on for some, uh, maybe a week, I can't tell you about She eventually went to the doctors, and the doctor told her to catch herself on. And the doctor told her, uh, Pat, you've got a wee bug. And uh, the wee bug's now 40 years of age this year. <laughs> and I said to myself, what a man, what a man. <laughs> What a man, what a family, you know, I had a business, I was doing really well, I had a nice house, and I had four lovely children, and nothing could be better. And you know, this story that I read you about the man who had died and was being carried out on a, on a, in a coffin or whatever way they carried him in them days, and you know, Jesus came along and that man had no hope whatsoever of ever living again. No hope was ever. He was on his way to his grave. And if Jesus hadn't have intervened, that man would have been buried and had no more life left. And that's the same today here. Jesus is here today as just the same Jesus as it was 2,000 years. He was 2,000 years ago. He's here today, and he said to the woman, stop crying. He had compassion. And today I can tell you that there's people in this church who cry out to the Lord God that people around them who don't know Jesus ever will be saved. They're crying out. My church is the same, crying out for lost souls. Because once you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your saviour and you read the scriptures, you see their end. It's like David when he read, when he saw the people around him who were evil, living well and de even dying well, he got a wee bit jealous and then all of a sudden he says, then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw their end. And what an end. What an end. But Jesus, if Jesus hadn't have been there that day, that lad had no hope whatsoever. Today is the same here today. I was the same then. I was living with no hope of eternal life if I hadn't eventually met Jesus. Pat church the children. She saw all the children born again. She saw Mark born again. She saw, we went, she went to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Crumlin. We live out in Ballanderry. And she saw uh, uh, Mark saved. She saw Jennifer saved at seven years of age. And she saw... Uh, Philip saved as well. Uh, Victoria was the youngest. She was born in December 1980. And it was such a joy. Uh, I remember driving into Belfast one day and I knew my car wasn't adequate. In them days, there wasn't the people carriers the way there is today. And I was driving past a showroom and I can't remember, somewhere I think, uh, over, over in East Belfast. I can't remember where it was. And I passed and there was a a new estate car, a Vauxhall estate car. I remember stopping. I just went and bought it, come home with it, so I could get all the children into this estate car. And it was just such a joy to have a family and have a business and do well. And you know, things abruptly come to an end uh, because 
Jennifer, on a 19, the 12th of August 1981, just prior to that, I bought Jennifer a new bike. And uh, again, it's very hard to explain to people today that in them days, even though we lived out in the country, the word paedophile wasn't a word that I even knew the meaning of. It wasn't in my vocabulary. And there was no badness about like there probably was, but we weren't aware of it. And uh, Victoria was only uh, 10 months old, nine months old. And on this particular day, the 12th of August, 1981, Pat asked, I was at work, Pat asked Jennifer to feed Victoria. And after she'd fed Victoria with a bottle, she got on her bike, Pat set her watch, and off she went from our house to Lower Ballandary, which is about a mile and a half. And the roads weren't as busy. We lived out in the country, and the roads weren't as busy. And she went off. And I made a point of never working on a Wednesday night. I worked in the office Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, and mostly Friday night. But on a Wednesday night, I always took it off so that I could get home, spend the night with the children, and allow Pat out to her midweek in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And when I drove into our yard at home, and I can't tell you the exact time, but coming up to six o'clock, Pat was standing at the back door, and I could tell sitting in the car that she was worried. We got out of the car, I said, Pat, what's wrong? She said, well, Jennifer hasn't come home. And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, she left just after lunch, and she was, I set her watch, and she was to be home at half past four, and she's never late, and she's not home. Now, Pat would have went and looked for her in her own car, but overnight, her car had had a flat wheel, so she couldn't take her car out because she couldn't change a tire. And I said, well, look, children are children. I wasn't really concerned. Children are children. I says, uh, let's have the dinner. Is the dinner ready? And she says, yes, the dinner's ready. So we had dinner uh, very quickly, and after we had dinner, we jumped into the car and went to the house where Jennifer was supposed to go. And when we got there, Jennifer had never arrived there. So we went round other farms and other houses where we knew that Jennifer may have went, <coughs> and she hadn't got there either. So we eventually ended up in Ackley Police Station, which was a part-time police station. And we told the police sergeant, who was coming off duty, he was about to shut the police station. <coughs> and he says, look, I'll hold on for an hour. Search for another hour. And if you can't find her, come back. We'll come back either way, he says. So we searched. And because we had asked so many people, there was now dozens of people now looking for Jennifer. And in an hour then, we were totally concerned. We went back and we said we hadn't found our daughter. And uh, <coughs> he then got the police from Lisbon, the army, and there was thousands of people then looking for Jennifer. Now, I can't explain to you what that feels like, what it feels like to be in a house where there's a little girl, this lovely little girl. Jennifer was just the loveliest child. She was saved when she was seven, and the Lord burst it out of her. She was always smiling. She even was an evangelist at nine years of age. She would have told people in her primary school that she was saved and going to heaven, and they needed to be saved. She was just lovely, very pretty too. And to go into the house and she's not there and you trip over some of her toys and see what was sitting about, I can't explain to you what that feels like because there's no vocabulary that I can put that into words. 
but just the awfulness of it and what it also does to your body. Some of the changes it does in your body is something terrible. So we searched, they searched for six days and she just disappeared into thin air. And on the sixth day, uh, <clears throat> I was invited down to the search headquarters and I went down and met the senior policeman who I already knew and he was telling me what was going on and how and this and that. And all of a sudden he was called away and everybody left the room except me and my brother-in-law was with me. And round this room was a wee bit small in this here. There was posters, uh, uh, sheets of paper stuck to the wall and names and addresses all around the Lagan Valley area. And these names and addresses were names and addresses of people in the Lagan Valley area who'd been convicted or suspected of paedophilia or incest or some other sexual crimes. And I couldn't believe that I lived among so many people who were perverts. And you know, when I started to read them, I actually knew some of the people that were on them sheets. So I did. He came back and he says, you have to leave. He didn't give me an explanation. I said, fair enough. So we left. And when I got home, I wasn't home half an hour, and the police liaison officer, a girl who I'm friendly with to this day, came and told me they'd found Jennifer's body. And if you leave Lisbon and go to Hillsborough on the A1, there's a roundabout, and after the roundabout, heading towards Tamore, on the right-hand side, not very far past that roundabout, there's a lay-by. And in that lay-by, you can buy fast food. Lorry drivers stop me all the, day, all the time. And in behind that, there's a dam called McKee's Dam, and two fishermen were fishing, and they found they fished her body out of the water, and she had been strangled, sexually assaulted, and then just dumped in the water. Again, I can't tell you what that feels like. I can't tell you. I can tell you when I had to go to identify her body in Craig Avon Morgue. That was one of the most awful things that I ever had to do in my life, and I almost fainted. In actual fact, she had the girl, the liaison officer, had to hold me up. And the awfulness of that, and then we had to bury Jennifer, and nobody was caught for her murder. It was like she disappeared in the midair and then reappeared, and that they, they worked for endless hours, and they could not find anybody who had taken Jennifer. And we had to get on with life, and this is what life's all about, getting on with life. And I honestly believe at that stage Pat's salvation brought me through that. Now, you may say that's awful funny, but I believe, in, I believe and have studied covenantal theology, this everlasting covenant that Abraham had with God, and the new covenant now between God and his son, Jesus Christ. And this covenant can't be broken. And I believe the saved, that tells the scripture, the saved mother or the saved father sanctifies the family. It doesn't mean this family is saved, but it sanctifies them. It puts them in a position that they have an opportunity or a better opportunity to be saved. And you know, I believe her salvation brought me through that. And I had to reopen my business. I can remember going into Lisbon again for the first time after all of this. And all the cars were still going about. All the shops were still open. You know, they didn't shut for Jennifer, you know, and life goes on and I had to go on. I had three, I had three children to look after, a wife to look after, and I had a very big business to look after, and life went on. And nobody, 
had been caught for a murder. Now, as Victoria grew up, uh, this child was the apple of my life, and she would have asked me on occasions till a Sunday school day or a good news day or something like that, and I couldn't refuse her, and I started occasionally to go back to church. And, you know, there was an expository preacher. That means a man who reads the scriptures and then breaks it up and explains it to you. And, you know, I got really interested in listening. See, the word of God is what saved people. And I once again started to, I wanted to be saved. But the Satan doesn't want me, didn't want me to be saved. I was in my 40s by this time, and he didn't want me to be saved. And one of the things that will hold a huge lot of people back from asking the Lord to forgive their sins is pride. For example, I had taken a partner, and I said, how could I go in and tell my partner that I've got saved? I had four or five girls in the office. I said, how could I tell them, worldly girls, that I am saved? How could I even admit to my wife that she was always right and I'm saved? How, and this went on forever. And I still went back to church occasionally and started to really be concerned under conviction because I knew if I died, I would go straight to hell. And the awfulness of that is that those that hear the gospel and reject it will be punished worse in hell than those that have never heard it and end up there. The scriptures explains that to us very clearly. So I've always been a walker and I've been a distance runner and I've been a climber and a cyclist all my life. And I decided I'd take a few days off and I went up to Petticoat up in the north of Ireland with a tent and enough food to keep me going for four days. And I started off at Petticoat and I walked up the side of Loch Derg where the Roman Catholic people go for to do their penance. Walked on that day to Loch Esk and I camped for the night at Loch Esk. Plenty of water there and had a really good night's sleep. But the whole time I was walking, there was this argument in my soul and my brain and my heart that I wanted to be saved and it, there was a huge battle went on. The next day I walked over the Blue Stack Mountains into the Glenfane National Park and I, it was September and I walked too long into the night. Probably about midnight when I stopped walking, pitched that black, <coughs> put the tent up for the night and had a really good night's sleep after I'd eaten something. And during the night a storm moved in. Now when I say a storm, I mean a storm. High winds and uh, horizontal rain. And the next morning I woke up and packed the tent up after eating breakfast. And when I was about to set out, I realized I didn't know where I was. I knew it was in the Glenfane National Park, but I didn't know exactly where I was because I'd walked midnight that night. And I couldn't see anything. The visibility was absolutely zero. And I couldn't see anything to set a bearing or to triangulate a bearing. So I got frightened, and I haven't been frightened more than two or three times in my life, and I got frightened. And I prayed to the Lord, I said, I have to see Patton Falcara, which is on the north coast tonight. If you get me to that north coast tonight, I will definitely go back to church every Sunday night until you either save me or I reject you. And the Lord spoke to me, and I set a bearing, and I walked on that bearing. I climbed down a cliff, walked along a plateau, and the mist just lifted up enough for me to see the bottom of Ericle sticking out of this clouds. And I knew it was in the poison glen, and I knew how to get to Falcara. And when I met Pat that night, I went back to church every night, every Sunday night, for quite a long time, perhaps a year. 
And one night after a special mission in the church, I went home and when I went home, I asked the Lord to forgive my sins and he did. And you know, when I was going up to bed that night, Satan started again. How do you know you're saved? So you look at the life you've lived. You asked to be saved when you were young, when you were going around with your dad, when he was preaching in the wee gospel halls. How do you know you're saved? And the Spirit of God spoke to me again and put into my mind a, a, a story my sister had told me 25 years prior to that. She had uh, went to WAC as a missionary. They told her she'd have to go to a college for three years. And they told her to choose a college and they gave her three options and the literature on three colleges. And she prayed about it. She couldn't decide on what college to go to. And then one day, when she opened her Bible, she read, and this verse jumped out of the Bible, and she couldn't leave this verse alone all day. And that night, when she was reading the literature on the colleges again, trying to make up her mind, she saw that this verse was over the gate of one of the colleges. So she knew that the Lord had spoke to her, and the Lord had showed her which college to go to. So I says, Lord, look, you can do that for my sister. Tomorrow morning when I get up, after I've showered and shaved, and go down the stairs, I want Pat's Bible and you was on the worktop. I want at first to tell me I'm saved. Next morning, I could hardly wait to get down the stairs, open the Bible, and the first verse I read was, Praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord, because he has delivered the soul of the poor from the hands of the evildoer. And you was saved and have rejoiced ever since. And I've had a contentment and I've had a peace and I have a purpose in life. And it's just, I wouldn't want to ever live without Christ in my life. And you know, we were such a happy family. For the first time in my life, I had fellowship beyond what I ever imagined with my wife. For example, yesterday morning before I left for work, my wife and I broke bread together and read the scriptures together. We have a habit of breaking bread together quite often. I get wine down, break a wee bit of bread, and we read the scriptures and pray together and break bread together. And the fellowship I have with my wife, I never had that. I had a loving wife and a loving relationship, but when I got saved, it just changed to a day. And nobody had been caught for Jennifer's murder. Moving on now to the early 90s, there's an old man working in a, in a garden in Stow, in the Scottish border, Stow or Stow, and he worked... Uh, the garden sloped down to the road and when he stood at the bottom of his garden the footpath was level with his eyes. He was down working on his lawnmower and when he stood up he noticed a van had stopped across the road. And something drew his attention to the van. He had at one stage worked as an undertaker and he had polished cars and looked after cars. And he saw the man in the van had got out and he was cleaning the windows and the wing mirrors of the van with a dirty rag. And he couldn't understand why anybody would want to do that. And as he watched, he saw a little girl come down the street. And he saw, because of the level he was at, he saw her legs underneath the van, and then they disappeared. The driver jumped into the cab and drove off. He saw and, and knew that he saw a child abducted. He was on the edge of the village, and he ran till the police station, two policemen on duty, told them what he'd seen. They put something and lots of things into action. Then they went out onto the road and they stopped traffic traveling west from the east because the van had went off to the east. And after about an hour, they stopped 
a lorry and the lorry driver was asked had he seen this particular van. He says, yes, I've seen that van. What drew my attention to the van was it's sitting in a disused quarry up the road. And he said, what drew my attention to it was that the man got out of the back of the van and he was stripped to the waist. And he said, I thought it was terribly strange, a man at this time of the day stripped to the waist. And they let the lorry driver go and they were discussing what to do next when the van came down the road and stopped the van and one policeman entertained the driver and one policeman opened the back of the van and he couldn't see anything that was going to bother him and he was about to shut the door of the van when he saw rags at the top move. And he got into the van, he pulled back the rags and there was a sleeping bag tied at the top, he untied it and there was a little girl in there. She was almost suffocated within half, they reckon within 15 to 20 minutes she had died of suffocation. Her mouth was strapped, her hands was tied and her legs was tied. The awfulness of that story is that the man, the policeman who rescued the little girl, it was actually his daughter. So he saved the life of his daughter. And the other horrifying thing about it was that he had sexually abused. This man was Robert Black. He was a pet predator. He, uh, he searched for young girls. Uh, and uh, he also had the equipment in the, the van to deal with what he wanted to do with them. Now, if I told you what he did to little girls, it wouldn't even be in your imagination. And I mean that. Now, that little girl, when she was rescued, has done very well. She's now married and has a family. So she's done very well. So Robert Black was arrested. And when they went to his flat in, in uh, London, they discovered that he was big time into pedophilia and bondage and all sorts of things. And then they started to look at some of where he delivered. He delivered all over England, uh, all over Ireland, some places in France, Scotland and Wales. And when they looked at where he delivered, they noticed that little girls had went missing in these areas. So they set about proving that he was there at the time. And in them days, when you bought diesel or petrol with a credit card, you put it into a machine and they swiped it and they give you a carbon copy. Some of, some of you will remember that. And that was stored in a thing called microfish. And they went to the petrol company, I can't remember which petrol company it was, and they got all the microfish files and they went through millions of entries and they were able to prove that he was in the areas at the time. So in the end, they were able to uh, have a, a convict him of three murders and two abductions. And during that time, the early 90s, the, the uh, proof was that he was in the province, our province, on the day that Jennifer went missing. So the, from the early 90s, we knew that Jennifer's murderer was Robert Black. We were totally sure of that. So during the times he was being questioned in the precincts throughout England and Scotland, they would, the RUC sent over a policeman and a policewoman and they were able to watch through a mirror how he was interviewed and learn more about him. And then they were trained by a psychologist and a psychiatrist how to question this man. And then he was sent to the province for questioning. And uh, it was Antrim Crime Suite. And you know, I got our church to pray that this man would say more than he ever said in his life. Uh, we asked other churches to pray as well. So there's a praying Christians there. And on the day that he started to be questioned in Antrim Crime Suite, 
My wife's reading was Balaam's donkey and how the Lord had made the donkey speak. She rang me at the office and told me what she'd read. I rang the senior policeman and none of these men were saved. Lovely men, but none of them saved. And I told him, this man will say more to you today than you'll ever expect. On a sliding scale of one to 10, the highest he ever scored in any precinct was three. When he was questioned here, he scored slightly over nine. That's how much he spoke. So we was eventually brought to court, and that was in uh, 2011. And the first three days of the trial, incidentally, the awfulness of knowing that I would have to look, my wife and I would have to look at the man who our daughter saw last. You just think of that, looking at the man who murdered your daughter. So we prayed about it and we decided that we wouldn't go to court. And then one day the Lord spoke to me and told me in a passage of scripture when I was praying about it that I would have to be there. And the police were calling with me that day to discuss things and after the finish of the discussion they said, Andy, we need you and Pat to be in the court. And I said, well, look, the Lord has spoken to me the day just this morning, and I know that I will go. And when I went home that night to talk to Pat, Pat says, look, the Lord spoke to me this morning. And when we conferred, she got the same verse as I'd got that told her she should be there. Even though her reading plan, I don't have a reading plan, I read more randomly. She has a reading plan. And even though it was totally different reading types, We both got the same verse on the same day, so we knew that the Lord would have us there. And the whole time, we decided that we would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through this. One of the other things that I had to work at, I had to work at forgiveness. I had to work at the fact that I would see a man that I should absolutely hate. But Christ has told us that this isn't right. Because Christ can even forgive the sins of murder. For example, Moses will be in heaven. So he will. David will be in heaven. Paul directly or indirectly murdered. So these men have been forgiven the worst crimes of the lot. So I knew Robert Black could be forgiven. I hated what he did. And I would have hung him if I had my way. Not for revenge because I believe that's what should have happened. So it was, and I had to work very hard with the Lord Jesus to come to a point where I actually forgive him. And come to a point where I pitied his soul. Because here was a human being with a brain, with a body that was going to hell. And when you're a Christian, you realize what hell's all about. And the awfulness of hell being tortured forever and ever and ever. You realize you don't want anybody, not even your worst murderer, worst enemy. You don't want them to be in hell. You don't want anybody to be in hell. You want to see everybody saved. Even the most awful people that you know, you want to see them in hell. So we were able to look at him, and we were shocked how old he looked. He was only about a year and a half older than me, and how old he was. We were shocked uh, at his lack of concern, his lack of expression. And the first three days of that trial was held, and it was picking a jury, and we had to be there. Then the prosecution argued with, uh, legally argued with the defence on what would be allowed to be used as evidence and obviously the, the, uh, the prosecution wanted to introduce his past crimes. Obviously his defence lawyers didn't want any mention 
of the murders he was already convicted of. So they argued that through and the judge in the end made a, a decision that if the prosecution could prove to him during the trial that he was in the province on the day that Jennifer went missing, then he would allow them to step up the trial and introduce his past crimes. And during that time, uh, there, we had to listen without any warning. We had to listen to this man being interviewed in Antrim Crime Suite and we had to listen to him explaining and describing why he liked little girls rather than mature women. And it was horrifying. I can remember I sat and wept. I went home, it was Wednesday when that was over, and I went home and I wept, and all I wanted to do was incarcerate myself in my house with my wife. But the Lord spoke to me. Hebrews, never forget the gathering of yourselves together. So Pat and I got ready and went out to our midweek prayer meeting, and the love and attention and prayer we got there brought us through that. If you're in trouble, speak to the Lord and then speak to other Christians that you can trust. They eventually went to Armagh Crown's Court and it was six weeks and I had to watch this man six feet from me. Six weeks I had to watch him and not hate him and have compassion for him. Hated what he did, would never let him out, would hang him, but I had to learn how to forgive him because the Lord Jesus Christ forgave me and the Lord Jesus Christ wants to forgive you. This is what this is all about. This isn't about me and it's not about Jennifer. This is about salvation. This is about rescuing people from hell. This is about seeing people born again. People going to be with Jesus when they die. And you know, after six weeks, he was convicted of the murder of Jennifer. And my pastor said to me, uh, just recently, actually, about two years ago, he said to me, he said, Andy, do you remember, he was with us quite a lot of the time, we had a room of our own in the, in the court, and he says, do you remember what you said when we went into that room? And I says, no, I don't remember. He says, you, you said, uh, let's uh, pray for Robert Black, because this man was just so pathetic. This man was gripped by Satan. And you know, whether you like it or not, if you're not saved tonight, if you haven't asked the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you, Satan has you gripped. The same Satan as you gripped as had Robert Black gripped. He'll bring you to the same hell as Robert Black's in. Because I don't believe Robert Black ever, ever submitted to the Lord Jesus. And you know, we had to meet the press, we had avoided the press, we had to meet the press and the liaison officers and the, the, their their police, uh, I can't remember what you call them, looks after all the press things, told me now, he said, when you go home tonight, you will have to meet the press tomorrow outside the court. You have something prepared, write it out, don't wing it. And you know, I started to think about it. The Lord spoke to me, I'll tell you what to say. I'll put the words into your mouth. And that next day, we glorified God in front of them cameras, and people rang me from Australia. Nothing to do with me. Jesus Christ was in me, talking for me and my wife. And she's so eloquent with her speech, so well-educated with her vocabulary. She was just lovely. So she was. And life goes on. He appealed, and we had to go through an appeal. We had to sit and watch him. We had to listen to a bridged edition of his crimes, which is even worse than listen to them over six weeks. And he sat nearer than this gentleman here to me, looking this way, and I was looking that way. And his countenance never changed. He never felt any. He knew what he put us through, but he didn't care that he's putting us through it again.
but Christ was with us. Jesus Christ never left our side. I was did a meeting last year in Bangor, and a man came over and he said, I'm a policeman. He says, you don't remember him? I says, no, I don't. And he introduced himself. He says, I was one of the drivers that drove you to the courts some mornings. And he said, I'll never forget you and your wife getting in one morning. He says, when you got in, the two of you started to pray, and you prayed from boundary you got to our ma. See, the Lord never left her side. It was like he sat with us. See, when the trial was over uh, and everybody had left the court, the clerk of the court was the only person left in the court when we had tidied up the room we were in. And I went in to say, Chew, to her, a girl called Grace, probably in her 50s. And she says, Andy, before you go, I have to tell you. She says, I've worked at this job, I think it was 25 or 30 years. She says, I've never went through anything like that in my life. She says, I've never seen, she says, the defense lawyers cry. I've never seen the prosecution lawyers cry. She says, I've never seen all the jury cry. She says, I've never saw the police cry before. And she says, I've never seen the press cry. And she says, in all the years I'm here, I've never once cried to the day. Um, such was the presence of God. Such, it was so humbling that the Lord was with us. And his appeal Field, and I can remember when we went back in the Peelot field, he was sitting again in the same seat. The prison officer on each side of him got him up off his feet, onto his feet. They put huge shackles on him, to each of them, on his legs and on his arm, and they led him past me, as close as them drums past me. And you know, I seen hell go past me, and a student weeped. A student weeped that Satan can grip a man or a woman so tight that he can lead them to hell. You know, you just think of that. You just think that day in that town, that lad had no hope. And you and I have no hope other than put your trust in Jesus. You can't do a thing other than ask Jesus Christ who died on that cross. You see, what people don't realize what Christ did on that cross. People think, like I used to think, that people have died worse deaths than being nailed to our cross. But when you start thinking it through logically, certainly it was awful being nailed on the cross. It was awful crown of thorns. Awful death. But listen, what Christ did at noon for three hours in darkness when the world went dark, Christ went to hell for you so that you would never have to go to hell. And you know, when you realize that the love of Christ, you see, this lad had absolutely no hope, but the love of Christ, somebody crying out, and he brought the lad back to life. Well, listen, the lad didn't lie there. He said to the lad, get up. And the lad got up and took life back. He had a decision to make. He could have made the decision just to lie there. You have a decision to make tonight. You can go about your life not saved, not born again, not trusting Jesus. You have a decision to make. And that decision could uh, slant and guide you for the rest of your life. You've got to make that decision. That lad that day had to make that decision to get up. And you know, they reckoned and were absolutely in awe of what Christ did that day. And you know, when we see people saved, the wonder of that, the beauty of that, where the Holy Spirit takes over. I can't save you. Nobody here can save you. 
But the wonder of that, God has come to help. Jesus Christ is here tonight. You know, life goes on. We've gone through terrible things even from that. Our daughter broke her neck in Australia in 2004 and was in hospital for three months in traction. And God thanked and God that she recovered. She was three months over here built into a cage. So she was. My wife has had terribly, terribly bad health. Last March, she was, went into hospital. She was in hospital for five months. She's had a leg amputated. So she has. She had a stroke. Now she's home. Uh, I'm, I have carers come in. I do what I can. And uh, I, there's, on a Sunday, I look after her most of the day. And I can still carry her into the car, carry her out of bed. She can't do, I have to clean her teeth, I have to cut her nails. If she uses a loo, I have to cut a cleaner after she comes off the, the commode. This woman would bring tears to your eyes when you realize how much she loved Jesus. And even through all their months in hospital, even through all the months since that, we have both glorified Christ. We have both showed people without any effort that Christ lives in us. In 2011, uh, my business was big. I turned over two odd million a year. And 75% of my business was to builders. Builders all shut down. And overnight, I lost my business. Taxman couldn't pay a tax bill of 109 pounds. It was more than that. I gave him 56,000 pounds, and he wanted another 108 or 109. Couldn't pay it, and he bankrupted me. Overnight, I lost everything. I lost 3.6 million of properties I'd built up over the years, me and my son. And one day I had that, the next day I had nothing. I never lost a minute of sleep. And I could write you a book how Jesus Christ has looked after me since that. Didn't have to shut my business. I was able to carry the business on. I've built it up again. We've got a fabulous business once again. And it goes on. There's, nobody gets off scot-free. So there's not. It goes on. Poor Pat is almost helpless. Before I left, uh, you know, when I got home, I go home at 3 o'clock now, get her out of bed, make the dinner, then lift her. When I was leaving, lift her, put her back into bed. She's in bed until I come home. If she wants out of bed, I lift her out of bed. Or tomorrow morning, I lift her out for breakfast. And we have breakfast together and break bread sometimes together before I go to work. But this woman just loved Jesus. And when I was leaving tonight, she said, right, let's pray together before you go. The two of us had prayer before we went. You know what we prayed? Pray that the Holy Spirit would work tonight. And the Holy Spirit would use his word that somebody would put their trust in Jesus that they would put their trust in Jesus. This isn't about me. This isn't about, it is about me and Jennifer and Pat and the rest of our family. But listen, you know, this child of ours, Jennifer, nine years of age, was just the most lovely child you met. Now I know everybody's daughter's lovely. And pe but people actually remarked to me just how lovely she was. But you know the one joy that I have I don't think about what she went through in the last hours of her life. I think about how she's enjoying Jesus now. See, I know that my Jennifer is in heaven with my father, with my mother, and with other people that have passed away. And I know very soon, I'm 71 now, 
And you know, I'm over three scores years and ten. I've asked the Lord to keep his promise. He tells us that the first commandment with a promise is to look after your father and mother and your days will be long. And I looked after my father and mother very well. I built a flat for them onto my house. So my house is a house with a big flat built onto it and they lived in the flat up until they passed away. And I looked after them very well, and I'm claiming the promises of God. See, the Bible's full of covenant promises. One of the promises is look after, and the Lord will give you a long life. And I want to live long enough to help my wife. And if she passes away, I pray that she'll pass before me, because if I wasn't there, she'd have no life whatsoever. And I mean that. She'd have no life. So I'm on borrowed time now, but someday I'll be with Jennifer in heaven. I'll be with Christ in heaven. I'll see the, the Christ who shines. And it tells us very clearly we'll be like him, we'll shine. And when we go and meet the Lord in the air on the last day, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. He said that in John chapter 6, he said three or four times to the disciples, I will raise you up on the last day. And the last day when I meet him in the air, I'll be changed to be like him. I'll shine like he shines. And I'll go to a place where there'll be, Jim prayed about it, there'll be no tears, there'll be no murder, there'll be no problems. You just think of that, what that would be like. I just am looking so much forward to it. I'm glad I'm alive. 2011, I not only went bankrupt, but I almost died. I took, a, uh, I took ill, never, never a day off sick of my life. Ended up in the Donald Hospital Intensive Care. Almost passed away. Woke up in intensive care. Tubes sticking out of me and I knew I was almost dead. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I'm almost dead. If it's my time to go, just take me. And I hadn't a worry in the world. I lay back in the Donald intensive care. It was like a spaceship enterprise. All the blue lights around me. I says, take me now. I'm ready to meet you. And the presence of the Lord come upon me. And I wallowed in the most beautiful presence of the Lord. And you, when I drifted off under unconsciousness again, when I came round, I was sorry I was alive. Such was the beauty of the presence of God in that intensive care that day. But thank the Lord I'm still alive. And it goes on. And it goes on. Going to finish with a small story because my time is gone, I think. Uh, <clears throat> people... People who get saved expect things to fall into their lap. And that's one of the biggest mistakes Christians make when they get saved. You've got to read the scriptures. You've got to study the word. Go to your church and hear the pastor speak. But you need to do your own homework. And build up your faith and get to know the Lord Jesus even better. And when you know the attributes of the Lord Jesus, then you have an expectation. For example, if you're sick, you have an expectation to be healed. When you have friends and people like here tonight who maybe are not saved, you expect them to be saved. You have an expectation. You expect your life to be that wee bit better. You expect these things. But when things come along, because you know Christ, you know the scripture, Paul in Corinthians uh, uh, boasts about the problems that he had in his life, and how he had been whipped, how he had been stoned, how he had been shipwrecked, how he had been all sorts of things, no food, naked. So he had. So he never lost his faith in Christ. And I have an expectation, so I have, that the Lord will look after me. Bought a new Mercedes 
few years ago. And my mum was still alive, and my sister and her husband, who's now passed away, but my sister's still alive. And I said to them, I rang home, I used to work on a Saturday morning, I rang home and said to my wife, look, ask them, they all lived in the flat. I says, ask them if they would like a wee run out in the car today. And when I come home, I said, yes, I want to go out in the car. This is in November, I think, in November. And uh, I says, right, where do they want to go? They want to go to Donegal in a November afternoon. So I had a quick dinner, and we all hopped into the car and went to Donegal town. And uh, the, women did a, the women did a bit of shopping there, and we went into an hotel and had a meal. And maybe 7 o'clock, we left the hotel, and we're driving down to Ballyshannon. From Ballyshannon over to Balik, and then from Balik over to Enniskillen. Driving along from Balik to Enniskillen, can't tell you the exact spot, going through all the trees, weaving through the road. And the Lord spoke to me. Go slower, Andy, because you could hit and kill an animal. Put my foot on the brake immediately. Nearly put Pat through the windscreen, and a full-size deer ran across the road in front of me. If I'd have kept on going, if I hadn't listened to the Lord, I'd have hit the deer, and we'd all been badly hurt, because we were doing about 60, 70 miles an hour. Now, I could keep you going all night with stories like that, because I have a supernatural saviour. I follow a supernatural God, the supernatural lives within me, so I expect supernatural happenings in my life. It's not every day, but it happens. But the most wonderful thing is, I said life-changing days, the most wonderful thing is the day that I put my trust and my faith in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what happens to me. I've been bankrupt, as I told you, I've nearly died. I never lost a minute of sleep because I know Christ is looking after me. I've tried over the years to study the scriptures and learn more about my Savior. And he is a wonderful, wonderful Savior. We'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, Father, that tonight you're still the Jesus that was there 2,000 years ago and raised that lad from the dead. And you were there, Lord, when he made that decision to get up start talking and walk about. And I pray tonight, Lord, that those that are saved will be encouraged by tonight. And those that aren't saved, that haven't asked you into their lives, Lord, this would be the beginning of a new life for them. Lord Jesus, we can only leave this in your hands because we can't save them. But we're crying out to you, just like that woman that day, that widow woman cried out and her son was raised from the dead. We pray tonight people will be raised from the dead. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.